Um, for those of you who don't know me, I think a lot of you do. Uh, for those of you who don't, my name is Reston Ansley. I live in Newton, Iowa, which is central Iowa, with my beautiful wife, Carolyn. One of our kids is here, Tommy. He's five. Uh, Emmy and Josie, our two younger ones, are hiding in the nursery, I believe. Um, my mom and dad, uh, Roger and Ansley, are here today. So they're the ones responsible for me. So you can lay all the blame at their feet. Um, <laughs> I am not a pastor anywhere. I am not seeking a pastorate. I am not in full-time ministry in any capacity. I'm just a member and a deacon at my local church. I happen to have a little bit of training, and I happen to like to preach. So I've been filling pulpit in various places for a number of years. Um, Uncle Jeff asked me this morning, how many years? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I've been doing it for a while, but uh, I'm happy to be here with you this morning. Um, the topic of what we're going to speak about today is the spectacle of the church. Uh, when I was given this topic, and I was given the passage, which is Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have those with you this morning. Uh, when I was given this topic, the, um, the cynic in me won the battle, and I decided to hop on the internet and go to Google and Google all of the ridiculous things that churches do to try to put on a show, to manufacture some sort of spectacle for everyone to see. And I was seeing things like a church that has a zip line installed from the back of the sanctuary and the pastor's zip lines into the, to the pulpit every Sunday morning. I saw a pastor who brought a giant trampoline on stage and was jumping around and actually fell off and hurt himself. Um, just ridiculous things. There was, there was a church that turned half of the sanctuary into a rodeo and the pastor rode a bull for three seconds before he was kicked off and then climbed up into the pulpit and preached. Um, just, just all these ridiculous things. Churches are, are desperate to put on some kind of a show, some grand manufactured spectacle to try to attract visitors or, or gain notoriety. Uh, in large part, what these churches are trying to do is they're trying to match the production value and the intensity of the world. Right? They're trying to put on a better show. They're trying to put on a better concert. They're, they they want to make something that's equal to what we see going on in the stadiums and the clubs and the concert halls all around us. The only problem is, we don't rock hard enough for that. Okay? Uh, we are not going to put on a better party than the world is throwing. And so what we usually wind up with is some sort of hokey, cheap imitation. And it really just has the same effect of all the attempts of the world to put on some sort of show. It's a flash in a pan. It's a, it's a big old flash in a pan. It's bright for a little bit. It looks cool. And then it's just gone. And then when the flash is gone, what do you have? What are you going to offer people when the flash is gone? What these, what these stunts, what these manufactured spectacles are missing, and what I think that, that we're missing as well in a lot of times, is that the church... The body of Christ, in its simplest, its most basic form, is a spectacle unlike any other in the universe. What so many in the world would just call boring church services. Coming to church, praying for each other, singing the praises of God, reading Scripture, hearing the Word preached, encouraging one another, those basic, simple things. That is the most incredible and unprecedented display 
of the glory and wisdom of God in the entire universe. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. It says this, So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's our main text this morning. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The text that we're going to look at this morning brings into view a realm beyond what's seen with the eyes and touched with the hands. All around us are these, these principalities and powers, these, these words that we hear the scripture writers use to try to describe things like angels and demons and Satan and evil spirits. These are things that we don't talk about very often, right? We want to shove them in a back corner somewhere. Uh, we, we think of them more like, I don't know, ancient superstition. But here they're at the, fourfold, the forefront of what Paul is talking about. Um, they're in full view. And we're being told that we, as the people of God, we are tasked with showing God's manifold wisdom to this unseen realm all around us. In order to understand what we're talking about here, what Paul's trying to communicate, uh, we need to ask some important questions. And once we have clear answers to the questions that the text brings up to us, we can begin to talk about how the, the church is a spectacle, how it puts on display the glory of God to uh, a watching world and also an unseen realm all around us. Before we do that, why don't we pray? Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for the provision of the people of God who are gathered here today. Um, Lord, you could have left us alone as individuals in the world, but you didn't. You gave us the provision of the church. And Lord, as the church, as the people of God, the body of Christ, we have responsibilities. I pray that you would help us understand what those responsibilities are this morning. And help us to understand how we can go about uh, doing the tasks that are set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question that we need to ask here, especially if we're just coming to a singular verse in any passage, the first question we need to ask is, what is the context? What's the context of this verse? So um, I'm, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning, and the English Standard Version breaks things down into paragraphs. So the beginning of uh, our paragraph where verse 10 is found it begins in verse 7. It says, Of this gospel I was made a minister. Of which gospel? What, what, what gospel are you talking about that you were made a minister of? Well, to understand that, you have to go back to chapter 3 and verse 1, where this begins. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. Well, wait a minute. He says, For this reason. For what reason? Understand, in order to understand for what reason, we have to go back to the previous paragraph. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, therefore. Wait a minute. It says, therefore. What does therefore do? It points you back to what came before. So we need to go all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 1. I know we're going backwards, but trust me, we're getting somewhere. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's begin there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the picture of who we were before Christ. But then in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Him. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we were dead in our sins, hopeless in the world. And Christ comes and makes us alive by His grace. We were spiritually dead. We could not understand the Gospel. We could not respond to God. And God comes and makes the dead man alive and gives us life again so that He can continue to show His grace to us. Now look with me in chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore therefore, killing the hostility. So we were separated from God. We were strangers, we were aliens, we were without hope in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, those of us who are, were far off have been brought near. And he's specifically talking to the Gentiles here. Um, remember, he's writing 2,000 years ago, and the church is in its infancy, and when the church was first born, it was largely Jewish. It was con- converted Jews. And now, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles as well, which is a fancy word for non-Jews, Right? The Gentiles are now hearing the gospel. They're being saved and they're being included in God's people. The dividing line between Jew and Gentile, it's gone. There's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male nor female. All are one in Christ. And we've been reconciled to God and therefore to each other. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, 
Paul actually kind of breaks off his thought in chapter 3, and, and we kind of go into a parenthesis. He'll pick it up in verse 14. But he breaks off his train of thought so that he can talk about the unique ministry that God gave him to go and preach to the Gentiles and bring these far-off people near so that they can now be fellow heirs and partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ. All of these people now have been brought together to become part of God's new covenant people called the church. And then we come to our passage this morning. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though on the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and heavenly places. So now we come to our passage this morning. We see the weight of everything that's come before. The table's been set. God has made dead people alive by His grace. And He's pulling them in from everywhere. It's not just the Jews anymore. The Gentiles are being included in this as well. I assume most of us are probably Gentiles here, non-Jewish people. So this includes you as well. He's revealed the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles and His plan and redemption. And the Gospel is preached. The mystery is brought to light. God's people are saved and brought into His family. The becoming the church. And it's all for this specific purpose. So that through the manifold wisdom of God, so that, excuse me, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So that's the context. All of this is building to chapter 3 and verse 10. All of the saving of God's people and knitting them together, breaking down the hostility, it's all for this purpose. So the next question we need to ask is, who are the rulers and authorities? Who's he actually referring to there? Well, Ephesus, um, ancient city, it was actually a port city in the ancient world. And as such, it was home to all sorts of manners of false religions, uh, cults, demon worship. So it's no surprise that uh, in his letter, Paul goes out of his way to talk about these types of things. Uh, in chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you briefly. In verse 19, and he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age and the one to come. Just like we read in chapter 2 and verse 1 where it talks about the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He talks about this again in chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul talks about this several times in this book. 
these rulers and authorities. He's using the exact same words over and over and over again. What's he talking about? Well, really, I think chapter 6 makes it clear. Uh, We're talking about this, this host of evil spirits. There's this unseen realm all around us that that wages war against God and His people and His purposes in this world. Satan is called the God of this age. He's likened to a a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the leader of the sons of disobedience. They set a course in this world and those without Christ are doomed to follow. Rulers and authorities. They're these demons, these evil spirits that do war against the purposes of God. But also, in this unseen realm, there's a host of angels and messengers and servants of God for whom the the redemptive purposes of God are of great interest. It talks about this a couple times. Um, You don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 says this, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. They want to look and to see what's going on in the gospel and the salvation of God's people. It even talks about uh, Luke chapter 15, I won't turn there, uh, but it talks about with the lost sheep and the lost coin. They're desperately looking. They're desperately looking. It's just like God who brings His people back to Himself. And it talks about how there is great rejoicing in heaven among the angels because God has retrieved His own. It's evident from Scripture that the church puts the wisdom and the love of God on display to a watching world. Everybody knows that, right? We're a city set on a hill. We're the salt of the earth. We are the body of Christ. We represent Christ to this present world. But Paul is telling us, even beyond that, even beyond showing Christ to the people around you here in this world, you are also tasked with showing the wisdom of God to this unseen realm. This unseen realm of evil spirits, rulers and authorities and demons and things the like. This unseen realm of angelic beings and the messengers and servants of God. That is who we are putting Christ on display for. That is who we are showing the manifold wisdom of God. So I think the last question that naturally arises here is what is the manifold wisdom of God. What is he talking about? What are we putting on display? Well, a few years ago, we had to redo the upstairs bathroom in our house. And part of the job was replacing the manifold, right? A larger pipe was coming upstairs, bringing the cold water. But that pipe can't take all the cold water to the sink and to the toilet and to the tub as well. So we had to put in a manifold. The larger pipe goes into a manifold that takes it down to three smaller pipes. That takes the water where it needs to go. Uh, the word manifold just means multiple or multivariate. The wisdom of God all comes from one source, right? It comes from God Himself. But it shows itself in all of these various ways. And most clearly in the Gospel. Look at me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we'll begin in verse 20. It says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Think about the plan of redemption. And think about how God's wisdom is demonstrated over and over and over again. It seems like ridiculousness to the world, right? God comes, he's a man, but he dies, and then he supposedly rises again. What what does that do, right? That doesn't make sense to the world. But for those of us who know and have been granted to understand, we see the incredible wisdom of God at play in the gospel. He goes on in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's wisdom in God choosing the foolish. There's wisdom in God choosing the despised things of the world. It's easy to forget, by the way, that Paul's talking about us, right? The, the foolish, the, the, the ridiculous things, the despised things, the low things that are not. That's us. He's talking about the people of God. That's what he's actually discussing there. We are the foolish things. We are the weak and the low and despised things. God chose us to be his people. And you think, where's, where's the wisdom in that, right? If you want to build a successful enterprise, you want the best and the brightest, right? You need the great minds of the day. You need people in high places. You need movers and shakers to get things done. And even then, success isn't guaranteed. But instead, God chose the opposite, right? God chose us. God chose the poor, the lame, the outcasts the people that the world doesn't want to have anything to do with. And through these people, He has built the church up into something the world has never seen. This unshakable testament to His love and His grace. And because of the people that He chose, because of our weaknesses and our foolishness and our infirmities, the only way that the growth and the success and the influence of the church makes any sense whatsoever is that God made it happen. God made it happen. 
He has built an organism that literally only works when it's completely dependent upon Him. And therefore, He gets all the glory. That's part of the manifold wisdom of God. The church is a spectacle. Not just an earthly one, but a cosmic one. God's people have been chosen to be the demonstration of God's wisdom to friends, to family, to neighbors, to strangers, to kings, to presidents, to CEOs, to billionaires, to angels and demons in an unseen host of spirits that we know almost nothing about. So now we come to our our final question that I think we need to ask, which is how? How is it that the church displays the wisdom of God to an unseen realm? I'm going to give you three things to take home here. Three things that you can do right now, this very week, to put the wisdom of God on display for the world and for a a watching cosmos to see. Number one is preach the gospel. Number one is preach the gospel. The first and the best way that you can display God's wisdom to an unseen realm and to the world around you is to preach the gospel. The gospel is foundational to everything that we do as Christians. We don't ever graduate and move on from it. It's it's the basis of everything that we do. There's no escaping it. Unfortunately, we're not always clear about what we mean when we talk about the gospel. And if I'm certain of anything this morning, it's that Brother Brad and Brother Nathan have been diligent in preaching the gospel in this church. So I don't imagine that if you're a member here, I'm I'm telling you anything new. But it's important for us to spell these things out. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's make it clear. Let's make it simple. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll begin in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is the gospel in its simplest form. It's the good news. Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave in accordance with the scriptures. You can preach the gospel in ten words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. Or you can preach the gospel in 9,422 words. That's how many words are in the book of Romans. That's Paul's presentation of the gospel. There's long, short, simple, complex. It doesn't matter. Tell people the good news. If you tell them Christ died for your sins and rose from the the dead, they might ask you questions like, wait, I'm a sinner? Yes, you are. You might have to explain the concept of sin. I might ask you questions like, who's Christ? Who are you talking about? You might have to talk about Christ and who God is and how He created the world. I might ask you questions like, why did He die? 
You have to explain to them our sinfulness and the need for a Savior and how we couldn't save ourselves. We had to have a substitute come and take our place. Long, short, simple, complex, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. God knew how important it was for His people to continually preach the gospel. Not just to everyone else. That's that's a priority. Don't get me wrong. Go preach the gospel to other people. But preach the gospel to each other. Preach the gospel to yourself. He built it into the structure of the church. Every time you eat the Lord's table, you come together for communion. Eat the little cracker and you drink the little cup of juice. What are you doing? You preach the gospel. That's what you're doing. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes again. You're keeping the memory of the gospel alive. You're preaching the gospel. Every time someone is baptized, you preach the gospel. Buried with Him in His death. Raised again into newness of life. That's the gospel. When men and women are baptized in the church, you're proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what's so great about the gospel that it needs to be continually preached by God's people? Some of you might have this passage memorized. But Romans chapter 1, in verse 16 and 17, it tells us. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Jews heard the gospel and found it offensive. It was a stumbling block to them. How could God become a man and then go and die? They were offended by that, that their Messiah would come and die. The Greeks heard the gospel and thought of it as nonsense. You're just an ignorant babbler, right? What is this bizarre stuff you're talking about? The modern world hears the gospel and thinks of it as outdated. It was fine for previous generations, but we've moved on as a society. But despite the knee-jerk reactions of the world, the gospel is still the power to save. People hear the truth, and God opens their eyes. They believe, and they're transferred from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of God's glorious life. What was offensive and foolish and outdated at first, God uses by His wisdom to expand His kingdom for His glory. This gospel has been entrusted to you. It's been entrusted to the church, to the people of God. So as you go forth and preach the gospel, and souls that were dead in trespasses and sins are brought back to life, the wisdom of God is put on display for everyone to see. The world sees how people are transformed by believing in Christ and having a relationship with Him. And an unseen realm of demons and angels looks and sees the wisdom of God and the Gospel being preached to the nations. They see that this message of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection isn't foolish or ridiculous. It's the active power of God at work in the world. Preach the Gospel and put God's wisdom on display. The second way 
that you can put God's wisdom on display this week is to demonstrate the love and unity of Christ. It's to demonstrate the love and unity of Christ. The, the book of Ephesians, it's, just, it's a letter, but it's kind of a, a sermonic letter. He's kind of preaching a sermon to them. It's, it's broken down, like most of Paul's letters, into two main sections. We've got the first section, chapters 1 through 3. This is where we find the indicatives. This is the, the verbs like is and are. We learn about God. We learn about who He is. We learn about doctrine and teaching, about what God has done and who His people are. We, we get all those basic things. And then, in chapters 4 and 6, excuse me, 4 through 6, we have the applicational section. Right? Um, because of the imperatives, because of what we have learned about God and who He is, we have to take this information and go do something with it. What's the things that we're going to do with it? These are the commands of God. It moves into the everyday realities of how we should live in light of the truth that we've learned, right? So when we began this morning, we set the context for our verse, and we went back to chapter 2 and verse 1, and we looked at the work of God transferring us from death to life. He took people who are far off, he brought them near, he, he, he built this new organism, the church, built on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles and prophets, with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And then... The transition comes in chapter 4. Look with me in chapter 4 of Ephesians, in verse 1. I, therefore, because of everything we've learned, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one, one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Therefore, because of everything that we've learned about God and who He is and how He saved us and how He made this new organism, the church, Therefore, because of all of this, the very first thing that Paul wants them to do with this information that they have is to walk in love and unity. That's the first thing he wants you to do. The church consists of people from every walk of life. Every race, every economic background, every political affiliation. God brings all of these people together in his church. And he sets Christ as their head and says, bear with one another. Bear with one another. Show love and grace and patience to one another. Be long-suffering for each other. Be eager to set aside your earthly distinctions and preferences to maintain the unity that I've given you in Christ. Get ready, folks, because there's a presidential election just around the corner. And everybody's getting ready to dig their heels in and sling mud and shout and scream their political opponents into submission. Because that's how we get things done around here. And if the church is not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to be humble and to consider others as more important than themselves, then it will easily be torn to shreds. 
Easily. Is God wise in bringing all of these different people together? From all these different walks of life, from all these different races and economics and and, and national backgrounds? Is God wise to do all of this? Your conduct towards one another is the answer to that question. You realize that? Will you put God on display as infinitely wise to a watching cosmos? Showing that His plan to bring Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free and rich and poor and Republican and Democrat together in the church is good and wise and effectual? Or are you going to fall to infighting? You're going to make your earthly distinctions the most important thing about you. Your political affiliation, your background, your race, whatever it may be. Are you going to make those things the most important thing about you and make God's plan look ridiculous and ill-fated? That's what's at stake. It's tough to maintain unity. There are a million things about you that make you distinct and therefore make it hard to get along with others who aren't like you. A million things. But if we have our hearts and our minds set on Christ and we're ready to forgive, we're ready to set aside our differences, ready to be patient, ready to consider others more important, we show to the world and to the watching cosmos that God is infinitely wise beyond all expectation. That He can make one body out of all these disparate parts that represents him correctly in this world. The third way that you can put God's wisdom on display this week is to suffer for the sake of Christ. Suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, you're like, the first two, okay, I can do those. Suffering? Nah, that's not for me. Why don't I pass on this? Well, let me clarify. Here's what I'm not asking you to do. I'm not asking you to run to the jungles of South America and find people that hate you, uh, to go beat yourself up, to find ways to make your life miserable and think of yourself as holy. That's not what I'm asking you to do. So what am I asking you to do is, what I'm asking is, as you encounter hardships, as you encounter difficult situations, as you encounter suffering, in your life, endure for the sake of Christ. Look at me in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share and suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and calls us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purposes and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began, and which now have been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been 
entrusted to me. Paul wasn't going around looking for trouble. Paul didn't want to go to prison. But as he preached the gospel, he encountered suffering. There was no way around it. The world hated the message of the gospel. And so he suffered for the sake of Christ. He wasn't ashamed. He trusted in Christ. Let me tell you, this, this is the gospel, right? The gospel is the story of a suffering Savior. The Son of God rejected by men, doomed to die, but doing so willingly for the sake of His people. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. As you suffer for the sake of Christ, you put the gospel on display just by how you live. Do you know that? As we encounter earthly difficulties, health issues, financial problems, broken relationships, even as well as as spiritual difficulties by people who are hostile to the gospel and who are really harassing you because of your faith, we show the wisdom of God by finding joy in Christ no matter what the circumstance is. You don't need to go looking for suffering. It will find you. Okay? In this world, suffering will find you. Especially if you are diligently preaching the gospel. But you can put the wisdom of God on display by enduring and finding joy in Christ nonetheless. God has brought all of these different people together. He's he's built this body called the church and He's made it for a purpose so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I want to take you to one more place. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. And we'll close with this. Because 1 Peter... Uh, excuse me, Peter, in his, his first letter here, he goes just a little bit beyond what Paul is talking about. Let, see with me here in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Last question. Why do we need to put the wisdom of God on display for a bunch of spiritual beings that we can't even really see? Like, why? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. That's why. That's why you were created. That's why this church was created. That's why God brought all of you together as the body of Christ here in Western. So that you could put the wisdom of God on display, proclaim His excellencies, so that He will be most glorified. That's why you're here. That's why all of us are here. 
to give God more glory. Show Him His glorious this week. Preach the gospel to others. Endure. Suffer for the sake of Christ. These are all the things that God wants you to do to show Him as glorious. And please, please, most of all, show the love and the unity of Christ to one another. That's how the world and the cosmos sees the wisdom of God more than anything else. Love one another. Maintain the unity. Keep suffering for God's sake. And preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this simple little verse that tells us something that we didn't really know before. Lord, I pray that we would take our responsibility seriously because we are displaying Your manifold wisdom to the world. And I pray that, that we will be diligent in preaching the Gospel, that we will be diligent in loving one another and maintaining the unity that You have given us, being diligent in suffering for Your name's sake so that the whole world can see how infinitely great and wise you are and so that a watching cosmos can see and so that you can be most glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.